Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Value Investors Edge Live. Today, we're hosting CEO Robert McLeod of Frontline to discuss the surging crude and product tanker markets. Uh, Frontline is a heavy owner in the VLCC, Suez Max, and LR2 space, uh, definitely positioned to have knowledge and to benefit from the current tanker market environment. Disclosures to start out, I currently have no position in Frontline. However, this is recorded on the morning of 23 April 2020, so if you're listening to a later recording, those positions may have changed. This call does not constitute investment advice nor official company guidance in any form. Robert, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Jay. Great to be back on your recording. Yeah, fantastic. I think uh, last time we hosted you was sort of early to middle of January. We were sort of talking about IMO 2020 and um, how the crew tanker markets were going to develop for the year. Of course, at the time, we had no idea of you know coronavirus or, or how any of that would impact the markets. Uh, so let's start with that. Uh, what has, besides coronavirus itself, what has changed the most uh, year to date about the tanker market? What is different than what we expected maybe in January? Yeah, I think when we were, when we were talking last time, then we, we were heading into the year, things were, were looking very good. Um, and then we had uh, only a few weeks after, after our chat, the, um, the market turned into what I described in my Q4 call as uh, more like a horror movie than anything else. And I think that was a good way to describe it. But, uh, but what happened, and that was obviously with this Costco feed coming back and, and, uh, and the cuts, and, and there was a lot of negative uh, stuff for the market at, uh, at once. But since then, the market has, uh, has completely, actually, before I go to what, where we are now, then we coming into February, things actually started to improve. And I think uh, February is very important because the uh, February market showed us that the uh, sort of uh, balanced fleet uh, that we've been speaking about very clearly in our last three quarterly reports was starting to uh, starting to show. So things were not as bad as uh, as it looked on the face of it. Things were improving, and then we got uh, what I would simply call massive massive tailwinds with uh, with the demand destruction causing um, a, a, a plummeting oil price, which in turn is um, starting to show on the fleet now where, where fleet ships are being used for storage because the commercially available land space in the world is, is simply not, not there. So the next place to go is, uh, is ships. So, so we're seeing that hugely affecting our market at, at the moment. Yeah, certainly, Robert. And, you know, it's totally different than anything we've seen before, right? Because normally when demand comes down or we're talking about uh, any sort of cuts, especially OPEC cuts, right, that's a very negative thing for the tanker markets. So have we ever seen anything like this before? I, I know I haven't in, in my 10 years, but you've been around the industry longer. Have you ever seen anything like this before? Uh, I have not, Jay. And uh, I was speaking to our chairman, uh, Mr. Fredrickson, about this uh, lately. The last one was actually today, and uh, and he's been describing it uh, many times as something he hasn't seen either. So it is, it is. Uh, I've, I've said in earlier calls, I've been describing it, uh, or when it started off, I described it as a, as a sort of once in a decade opportunity, and then I I moved on to describing it as once in a generation. And, uh, and it's, uh, as you know, the tank market is not complicated. And I think there's a lot of similarities we can um, point towards versus 2015. At that time, we had a end of 14, we saw a lot of vo oil volume hit uh, the market and we're seeing our excess volume. And that's what we're seeing now as well, as, which is causing this inventory uh, 
build, but but it's happening at uh, such a, such a fast pace compared to to 2015. But uh, the way the market is reacting uh, on the spot and also the time charters, it's it's quite similar. So uh, so we we always look at what's happened in the past, but a lot of textbook stuff is is totally out the window because this is unprecedented times. Yeah, it's like kind of we're learning as we're going, but you can you can clearly see the the pressure in the market, of course, with the rates. Um, so a lot of folks are looking at different uh, sort of data for their storage. So we have the EIA data for the United States, and, th- and that seems to be fairly current. And we can see the weekly uh, stock builds, both in crude oil and petroleum. Uh, but the global numbers uh, tend to be all over the place. Um, is there a sort of data source that you use uh, preferably or a sort of metric or chart that you are tracking to kind of figure out uh, what the global storage situation looks like and how many tankers are being utilized at the moment is is there a data source you utilize or is it an estimate or what does frontline look at so what we look at first of all jay we, we do not have our own internal uh, research so so we rely on external and uh, and then we also because this is a very simple business we also rely on our common sense but if, if if I was to sort of explain to my young children what's what's going on then I would refer to the Kepler data the Kepler data, I think, is uh, one of the data points is uh, what they call oil on water. So basically, it shows how much oil is on ships worldwide. This is not never going to be 100% accurate, but it's, uh, it, is, it is a pretty, from what we can see, it's, it's very good, and it shows how things are developing. So when looking at this, then, uh, then it's clear that, uh, that we are in a uh, situation we've never seen before. That, that's obvious. And uh, what this um, um, catches is it catches in the, or it includes storage, uh, of course. It, it includes slow steaming will be included in it. Congestion will be con- concluded, uh, included. So there's many or, or every every sort of important factor is, is in that number. And then we so we see uh, how things are like from from yesterday to today. We saw in these figures we saw a increase of seven million barrels. So basis that pace, and, and again, well, I'm not going to say this is 100% accurate, but it shows the trend. So the trend it's showing is a weekly build on ships of, of 50 million barrels, which uh, in VLCC terms is 25 cargos. So th- that, that piece of data I find very useful. Yeah, thank you, Robert. I, I know you sent me a chart uh, in an email a few days ago, and it kind of caught my eye. And it was a different metric than we had been using before. I used oil on water, right? And you can see that it's clearly yeah. well above well above the trend line and growing. Um, how far back does that data lag? For example, I think the chart you sent me uh, was showing 7 April, and I think another one may have been 20 April. Is that correct? Is that pretty much yeah. current data, or is there some sort of lag in that? No, that, that's current data, and it, it was funny when I, when I sent this to you. I think I think that's that's probably the reason why we're on this call, right? Because we were pretty quick uh, coming back, which I appreciate. Because I, I think that piece of piece of information is very important. So, this was something that I I was uh, I was showing showing um, as, a, as a very easy way to explain the market. We get this data daily, so I, I basically looked at uh, a two week. Actually, it ended up being a thirty because of weekend. It ended up being a thirteen day development, and what it showed me was that uh, during the 13 days that um, I illustrated on, on the chart, then the growth in oil on water was 7%, which is substantial because what this is all about, this whole thing that's going on is simply tankers being employed and, and we are watching how quickly it happens. And uh, obviously the, there's a flip, flip side of this and that is that uh, volume, volumes will be disappearing with OPEC cuts and, uh, and shut-ins and so forth. 
But from what we are seeing, the, the growth on oil and water is exceeding, uh, exceeding the other factor, which, uh, which stand in favor of the tanker market. Yeah, absolutely. That's very interesting. And we can we can track the oil on water, and I think that's a very good metric. It's obvious how many tankers are being utilized, both for storage and also maybe slow steaming or, or just different logistical routes and, and so on. It doesn't really matter what they're doing, right, as long as they're employed in some fashion. Exactly. What sort of metrics uh, can we track for the actual on-land storage? Because it, it seems like a lot of stuff out there is just kind of estimates and guesstimates. And I mean, I know for the United States, we have the EIA data. Um, is there anything you utilize for, for a global land storage? Right, because we see the headlines. And the headlines say, you know, storage yeah. is filling up rapidly, uh, but no one seems to be able to quantify it. Is, is there any sort of estimates that you've seen? I, I think you, you're pointing out, it's, uh, 100% agree. So what I do, again, we don't have our uh, our own research, so we, we rely on what we talk to people and, and, and we ask a lot of questions. And, and for me, what's important, because there's a lot of headlines that will confuse people, I think what is important when you look at land-based storage, that is what land-based storage is available to you and me and traders and oil companies. So you can take, for example, Chinese SPR, uh, that's not available. So, so that's not when you're looking at the oversupply of oil now. That's that's only available to to very few. So, commercially available is limited. Um, obviously, US SPR has been been opened up uh, a little bit, but uh, but then uh, going back, that's not been available. So, when talking to the traders like three four weeks ago, their their estimates were between 250 and 300 million barrels. So uh, since then, this number has clearly um, clearly come down. Uh, so it would only be a guess, but say there's 100 to 150 million barrels left. Again, I'm guessing, but uh, I think that's that's a fairly educated guess. And from the data we are seeing now, we are building uh, building by by 50 million barrels a week. So this is again, it's a simple business, and it shows a clear trend, and it shows why the spot rates are strong now across all segments we are operating in, and that is because more oil is hitting hitting going on ships, and things are taking a longer time. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it, like you said, it's common. It's common sense that the demand for oil storage or transport is is far higher than the marginal supply of vessels. I mean, that's obvious by looking at the rates. Uh, you mentioned it's strong in all segments. I mean, VLCCs uh, that's pretty obvious, right? For crude carrier storage and and so on. Uh, Suez Max is uh, that makes sense as well. But we've also seen a huge surge in LR2s. So I guess first part of the question: uh, Can you remind the audience what your current split is between dirty and clean on the LR2s? And then secondly, can you talk a little bit about what's driving that LR2 spike? So the LR2s, we have 18, uh, all are modern, like the rest of our fleet. Uh, we are currently trading 11 clean and seven dirty. Uh, the dirty has been outperforming over the last uh, several quarters. Uh, but uh, the clean has is now into it's basically hit a mega spike. It's something this is that's never seen such earnings, and uh, it's driven by uh, high refinery margins, uh, which in turn leads to high volumes of uh, of products uh, available to sh to to ship. And um, and there's, there's simply not enough ships around, and uh, the tightness in the market is is extreme, and every voyage is taking longer. Where you have the same contango on products as you have on on crude, so it's uh, it's an extremely uh, extremely interesting uh, situation. 
Yeah, it's definitely, definitely interesting to see. Uh, the spot market rates, I mean, we can see the clear quotes for those, uh, but let's talk a little bit about time charter markets. What sort of time charter offers have you been getting for the crew tankers for six months or 12 months? And have you been also seeing any sort of time charters for LR2s or is that simply a spot market? Great question, uh, Jan. I think this is this is a central thing because looking at our fleet, we've been uh, last three quarters saying very clearly we believe in the spot. I think it was proven in in February, and then we had these massive tailwinds. Uh, again, comparing to earlier cycles is important. Looking at 2015, uh, similar six months charters were were active. We've had that over the last three four weeks. I would estimate that uh, about 10% of the VLCC and the Suez Max fleet was employed on six-month contracts. I think generally owners are now more reluctant in doing six months, and the, and the period market is uh, moving towards 12. Again, exactly the same as uh, as uh, 2015. In terms of rates, the Suez Maxes are now on the modern ships uh, in the 50s uh, for 12 months, and the modern VLCCs are in the... Uh, in the 80s, and uh, the uh, LR2s were in the 40s. They could even, a, a modern prompt position, could well well start with a five. So very, very strong uh, across the board. And um, we have maintained a very high uh, spot uh, percentage, uh, but as we've done in previous cycles, and what has saved us in the downturns, because after inventory build periods uh, where you have strong freight, you do get inventory draw for weaker freight. So I think uh, this is a great opportunity to take some take some uh, hedging going forward. And for someone like us with such a large fleet, that's obviously important. But the liquidity uh, is low on a time charter market uh, compared to, to what many think. So it's, it's all about being uh, being patient and waiting for this to to, to come to you. And uh, I'm confident that will happen because I don't think the uh, the sort of build of oil on tankers is going to stop uh, anytime soon. This will go on and, and, and leave plenty of opportunity to take some charters if one wants. Yeah, it makes sense to to watch that market and see where the where the time charter spread is between that right and the current spot to kind of get an indication of what the longer term viewpoint, I guess medium term viewpoint is versus just the very short term. And it sounds like you mentioned about eighty thousand for VLCCs, uh, about fifty for Suez Maxis, and forty, but maybe also fifty thousand for LR twos. Has uh, has Frontline yeah. decided to take any period cover at this point yet, or are you just purely spot at this moment? Um, thanks for the question, Jane. We, we will we will be very clear on what we've done uh, when we when we do our our um, quarterly release here in May. But all the, all the, then we'll have a full rundown. But I, we are watching this very closely, and then I'll get come back with more details. Copy that, Robert. Keeping that close to vest, um, but definitely watching the market. <laughs> yeah. um, you yeah. know, we, we we see weekly reports of, of reported charters, and there's a huge surge about two weeks ago. Um, it was one of the longest list of period charters I've ever seen in a weekly report. And then last week there was only a handful. So we'll we'll continue watching the report and and see where those see where those line up. Um, you know, one of the tools that retail investors and I think institutions now utilize as well is a Twitter account called Tankers International. It's also a, an app called VLCC Fixtures, and they uh, it's sourced from data based on I think the TI Tanker Pool. And there's, you know, a lot of sometimes fixtures from Euronav are on there or International Seaways or various other companies. Um, does Frontline participate in any sort of information source like that? Or do we just need to wait until your quarterly call to kind of get an idea of where fixtures are at? Yeah, so uh, we, our, our um, 
uh, fixtures often come out of the market and then they are put on the app. But we do not uh, put our own fixtures onto this. Uh, we, we treat each uh, charter party as it's written, which is private and confidential. But a lot of our fixtures, if they leak out into the market, you'll see them on the app. But we are not active uh, participants. All right. Thank you, Robert. I know that's been kind of a frequent question of folks saying, hey, where can I find out, you know, what Frontline is doing specifically? And is it fair to say that kind of the indicated uh, spot rates from Clarkson's and other benchmarks, is that fair to say that's a good approximation for Frontline for investors thinking about how you're no. doing today? I think when, when we're at the extremes we are now, then uh, then uh, investors should discount the headline number. Uh, on Because uh, when, when it goes up to $200,000 plus, if you have four days of, of waiting that hits your number a lot and and there are delays there's weather delays and so forth so uh so none, no no tanker company uh, uh will will be as high as as the index uh, shows uh, on the face of it yeah it makes sense when those spikes are enormous you're talking about five fixtures yeah. versus maybe a, a normal day might have 20 or 30 fixtures right so uh, exactly. we, we sort of look at we, we tend to look at kind of the median rate um, on, on periods like that, we you know look over a period of sixty days, ninety days, and look more sort of the median as opposed to the average. Is that is that sort of something that you would do as well, or is there any sort of way uh, you would tell investors to kind of, I guess, discount some of those huge rates? I think it's a good way to look at it, uh, but it's, when it's very, very strong, um, uh, like it is now, and it keeps over time, like it also does, does now, then then I would apply. I can't give you a percentage, but I would, I would, I would look at look at uh, discounting it a bit because uh, that that's what that's what reality is likely to show. Certainly, it certainly makes sense. I think it's a good caution for folks when when you hear two hundred fifty thousand. Um, that yeah, maybe you get one or two ships at that, but that's not going to be the entire yeah. fleet. And you know, you know, you no, think exactly. that would be, you would think you think that would be common sense, but uh, I think sometimes uh, folks do get carried away, and maybe you say you, you do one hundred and fifty, and people get disappointed, and they lose you know the forest yeah. for the trees. That one fifty is actually actually very good. Um, so I think you're touching on something very well, just a comment on that. I think it's a great point, Jan, and that's what why I don't like these mega spikes. And because uh, it, it's like if you go from 200 to 150, as you say, it looks like it looks like the world is falling apart. But uh, the fact is that uh, for Frontline, with a with a cash break even on a VLCC of twenty two thousand dollars, then 150 for a long voyage, it's it's amazing uh, returns. So uh, so that 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 caution is uh, uh, being aware of that. I I think is very important. Of course, and of also, course. Um, okay, carry on. Yeah, no, that, that's that's great, Robert. I just, you know, we have 50, actually closer to 60 folks live on a call, and we'll have probably uh, four or 500 people listen to the recording, and hopefully we'll get this public as well. So, yeah, just good to get those numbers out there so people have realistic expectations that say, hey, look, you know, maybe 250 isn't something you should look for. Maybe it's more like 140, 150, uh, which, of course, is still a, a phenomenal rate. Uh, Robert, one of the big headlines, yeah. and it, it's probably more distracting than anything, but one of these big headlines has been this uh, flotilla of Saudi Arabian crude headed for the United States. And it's been kind of a political football. And recently there was a story about them changing course and going somewhere else, not going to the United States anymore. Uh, first of all, is that a story that you're following at all? And uh, second of all, I guess related to that, what happens when a crude tanker cannot find uh, somewhere to dock and has to store the oil longer? Well, what happens in that scenario? So, so number number one, um, uh, I, I find I find what's been sent out by Reuters. Uh, I, f I find it very very hard to believe. So, I think by commenting on it, I, I probably would just add to speculation. So, I think I'll just leave the comment comment uh, as that. Uh, 
your second one is it's a great uh, great question because because this is this is one of the one of the important things to uh, to realize and that is why is oil and water increasing it's because one of the factors is there's no home for the oil we're all talking about land-based storage another thing is that the traders and the oil companies have cargoes floating around and um, and there's no home there's no there's no buyer so for us, uh, as, as frontman, I, I can't give you a percentage, but I'm, I'm sure between 10 and 20% somewhere of our ships are currently sitting at a, at a place or port, anchor, anchor down, and the, the owner of that oil has no idea where, where the oil is going. So, so this, is, this is one of the factors why this oil and water is, is increasing rapidly. There's, there's nowhere to put this. And, and we've got plenty of examples in, um, in, in Europe, Spain, for example, where, where there's a lot of ships sitting. Uh, we've got South Africa with Durban, Durban uh, a lot of ships sitting. Uh, Malacca in Malaysia. We, we've got Brazil. We've, we've had uh, a ship sitting there for, for many, many weeks. So, so delays caused by, by car, unsold cargo is, is a key factor. Yeah, it seems like those might increase, you know, if the buyer cannot uh, find online storage or cannot find a refiner to utilize it or so on. Uh, you, you would think those arrangements had already been made, but it seems like things are rapidly changing in this market. Uh, you know, there's a there's a report out earlier uh, this morning that we, we saw posted on our boards that was mentioning something about how some tanker owners would need to wait uh, maybe six months or 12 months uh, for payment. Um, is that something you've seen at all in the market? And and how does it usually happen on, on one of these spot voyages or charter voyages? When do you receive an actual cash payment? So we'll say we contract uh, a ship to do uh, Arabian Gulf uh, to the US. Uh, the ship might be contracted in March, loads end of April, and then arrives in uh, in June, and then and then uh, it might be discharged in August, September. So so what I'm describing here is uh, is basically a six month period from contract uh, to uh, to discharge, and the freight is to us owners is payable after discharge. So, so there's a, there's a time lag here. Uh, there's also this that's called demurrage, which is basically the daily rate at which we're paid for waiting. That is normally uh, normally paid uh, within three to six months on average after discharge. So then you're looking at nine to twelve months from contract to receiving all demurrage. Uh, given the um, extreme market and the, and the conditions, we and many other owners are, have successfully. Uh, included in in the contracts uh, on many of them that uh, demurrage is payable on account every 10 7 or 15 days so that means that we get that cash um, uh, sort of payable on account uh, whilst the freight is, is paid uh, uh, within days of discharge uh, so so payment of freight comes comes very soon after discharge makes sense robert what about a time charter if someone takes your ship for six months or 12 months is that payment schedule different or is it still paid at the end that is scheduled uh, very differently so so then you are paid uh, a monthly uh, ahead so you would you would now for example a ship that is on time charter but from from frontline to, to one of our customers we would in april invoice uh, invoice for the the monthly hire for for may so for, from a cash flow perspective uh, time charters are better for us than uh, than voyage charters also when we charter out a ship on time charter then upon arrival the charterer will purchase all bunkers on board the vessel 
yeah, it's definitely a different cash flow situation and definitely more advantageous uh, dollar for dollar. Now, of course, if spot rates are triple, uh, then it might be worth getting paid somewhere in the future. Uh, this has never been a problem in the past, but do you see any concerns about counterparty risk, considering that the payments are delayed uh, until after uh, unloading or sometimes it emerge is not prompt? Do you see any sort of concerns with counterparty risk or have you heard anything in the market about that? And it has it has happened in the past. We, we look back at 2008, 2009 financial crisis. There, there were there were problems there. Uh, at Frontline, we are very very um, cautious when it comes to counterparty risk. Uh, we we are, are, of our ten main customers do do a very high percentage of of our business. So we uh, we we only deal with the the best signatories, and we are not concerned uh, on this front. But uh, Got a new customer with, with no relationship to and so forth, we would do very, very thorough uh, credit checks uh, or even ask for upfront pay payment before entering into a contract. We, we're not going to add risk. But as a, uh, and generally, we've, we've not heard in the market here of, of it being a problem. But uh, obviously, in the state of the world, there's this, this certainly, certainly cause for, for being conservative on this front. Yeah, it definitely makes sense to be conservative. And, and thanks for bringing that parallel back to 2008, 2009, uh, where there were a few indications or a few cases where uh, I, I guess the, the credit did not come through at the end. And I think that is a, a valid concern that some investors have as they say, hey, what happens, right? With all these oil companies are struggling, we're seeing these headline prints of negative prices. Uh, what happens if one of your counterparties does default? And it sounds like some of the terms are being adjusted a little bit. You mentioned demurrage uh, shifting from something that's paid off in the future to maybe something that's paid every 10 to 15 days. Um, and then you mentioned some of these charters might be paid up front. Uh, do you think it might be possible to see spot voyages where they are no longer paid at discharge? They are paid throughout the voyage, almost like a, a term charter? Or do you think that's too extreme? Uh, I, I don't. If you present the idea, I think uh, charters will, would would feel it's too extreme. But if you look at the look at the facts, then then I would I would say it's not extreme at all. And I would not be surprised if this is something that's uh, brought brought up and, and suggested. Uh, if, if you look at the dry cargo market, that's how that's how it works in that market. Uh, but just when, when talking about this, I think it's important to also highlight in terms of the risk factors, because I think you're, you're making, making the investors aware of a very important point. Just, but just one more to add is that we, uh, obviously the oil price is down, but, uh, uh, substantially, but still has value. So looking at, uh, looking at the cargo value. So if we, if we have someone that do not pay, then we can, we obviously have some security in the value of the cargo. So, so that's, uh, that's sort of, so just to, to be aware of. But again, front, uh, front line, we are very, very uh, cautious and, and the customers we have are they are the big players and they have been our customers for decades. It definitely makes sense. Uh, customer vetting is more important uh, than it's ever been in the future. Uh, you know, you know, one of the viewpoints, and I think something that's scaring away investors now is they're saying, "Well, these rates are phenomenal, right? It's it's kind of a feast." But what happens in three months, or six months, or nine months, or whatever period it is on the other side, a, a famine, if you will, right? There's a there's a drawdown of global inventories. Exporters are still utilizing cuts. Um, how do you see that scenario unfolding, Robert? Is that a risk factor investors should be worried about? And if so, uh, what sort of market uh, do you anticipate on the other side? No, I mean, it's a great question. This, this is this is the trickiest question. This is this is the billion dollar question. And um, and I, I see inventory build as a 2020 event, and we, we're 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 starting it now. So uh, and through the inventory build, then we're going to have strong rates. 
again back to 2015. Uh, that's that's exactly what happened. It lasted then for 18 months. I've got no idea how long it will last this time, but uh, I do I do see uh, inventory build through this year. I'm guessing it's going to be through this year. And when we come to the inventory draw period, then freight will go down. There's, there's obviously no doubt. And uh, that's going to be a time where, where we need to be well positioned in terms of having taken some charter coverage. Uh, and uh, But I think generally, uh, and I need to be careful on this, but, but generally my feel is that uh, the, the concern uh, of 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 the other side is is a little bit a uh, little bit higher than what I think we're actually going to be faced with, and the reason I'm saying that is the fleet supply side, and uh, that is obviously the the main the main factor in the market normally. Now we've had these new factors that come in and play the main roles, but. The, the main role is normally the fleet supply. I've, I've always got a slide on that in my my um, presentations. And on fleet supply, it is looking uh, looking very good. And that is compared again to uh, to 15 the 15 cycle coming into 17. We had inventory draws, but we also had a very very large fleet growth of eight percent in 17 and eight percent in uh, in um, 18, uh, 17 and 18 both both years. But this time. It's it's going to be going to look very different. I don't think we will have many new building orders in 2020, and um, and that is has various reasons. Uh, it's finance, it's propulsion, and it's also that oil demand is going down, and people will see that adding adding ships to the tanker fleet is probably not not a good idea. And if you want a tanker, you should buy one that's on the water, and there are ships for sale on the water. So given that view, I expect to start 2021 with a very, very low order book. It's probably going to be historically low, uh, estimate between 2 and 3% of the world fleet. And when 2021 starts, we're going to have a world fleet in the VLCCs where one out of four ships will be above 15 years. So I expect uh, when the inventory draw starts, then I expect us to enter into a ship recycling period, which, which could be massive, uh, provided the market drops to low levels. And when these um, ships come down to the operating costs, so like $8,000 a day sort of scenario, then it's important to highlight that even without time shadow coverage, Frontline will still be making money. So I reckon the modern ships uh, will will be in a much better position than than the market presently, presently fears for the future, given the fleet dynamics. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. One of the metrics we tracked for several years, of course, is the balance of the modernity of the fleet, right? It's getting older and older, and also the order book, which is getting smaller and smaller. And, you know, we did, we did not see the Costco sanctions coming, for example. I, I don't think anybody did, right? And then we didn't see coronavirus coming, right? I don't think anybody really did. But we did see the tightness of the fleet, right? So the tightness of the fleet yeah. positioned us to be bullish on crude tankers uh, because we could see, right, that there was a very small gap between demand and supply, and the supply was only going to get better. And it seems like that's unfolded right different different ways than maybe we thought it would, uh, but it's unfolding that way. Um, it also seems like you know when oil recovers and the price starts going back up, uh, the bunker fuel prices are going to surge, which would further you know widen the window between what a modern VLCC can do in the market versus an older VLCC. Let's talk about that real quick. Let's talk about IMO 2020 and the spread between VLSFO, right, compliant fuel and the high sulfur fuel oil. The spreads have collapsed, right? The spreads are like $50 a, a, a ton, right? So scrubbers are not doing what we thought they would do. Uh, do you think that's going to change or was the scrubber investment kind of a failed one for the industry? 
Um, I think it, it depends on uh, on uh, how you've done the investment. For frontline, I don't think uh, I, well the, the investment's not been uh, not been a bad one because we, we we did it in a different way. We we took part on of uh, a company and we made money from other people ordering and we we played it a little bit differently. We also had a very high uh, pay down ratio as everybody in the beginning of of this because uh, we st- we had to start shifting in November. So from November through through to January, we were saving in the region of $400,000 a day on uh, on the scrubbers. So, so we had a lot of payback. Uh, probably probably half our investment was paid back uh, back uh, before the um, the um, the spread came came down. Now we are paid back. I reckon about sixty thousand dollars a day. It's 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 come down a lot. So at the current spread, I think our investment will be paid back end of twenty two, early twenty three. Uh, but uh, so it's it's not it's not unfolding the way the way um, that we were expecting. But the other side of this, with with the money that we're making on uh, on on the spot market now and and the opportunities that are ahead of us, uh, then then that is uh, that is the least of our concerns. Uh, and I think when we when we were on this bunk uh, bunk um, theme, then uh, then uh, we we've, we've had I think that probably it might have been the best thing Frontline did in in 2019 in terms of. Uh, Strategic decisions. Uh, we entered into a JV with Trafigura on on fuels, and uh, they own 75%, and our group own 25. And this has been fantastic because we we have access to fuel timely, the right quality, and the right price uh, all over the world. Uh, Monday this week, we were were given a license to operate as bunker suppliers in Singapore. Uh, the Singapore has been very, very strict over the last few years. They used to have two years ago or three years ago, they had more than 50 licenses. And um, and now they've cut it down to the 20s. And uh, we, we were one out of two who got a new license for the first time in many years. So it puts us in a, in a good position in terms of fueling our ships because delays um, are, are present. And in the present market, uh, a delay of, of a few days on the VLCC is obviously extremely costly. It'll certainly be interesting to watch. You know, it did not quite unfold like a lot of us thought it would. But of course, we we also didn't see uh, the coronavirus impact happening to the markets. Uh, do you think that spread is going to uh, increase and balloon back out, or or, or is fifty dollars, hundred dollars, sort of the max? No, I think I think it will it will it will be uh, be very closely correlated with the uh, with the oil price. So when the oil price uh, recovers, which it obviously will do at some point, then uh, then you'll see the spread go straight straight out. Uh, I expect uh, for for the next uh, for it, that will be the case for the next twelve to twenty four months at least. Further out, then then refineries might adapt, and then and then the availability of the uh, of the low sulfur will then increase uh, uh, potentially, and then then the pricing could uh, could could or will change. But for the next twelve to twenty four months, I think uh, spread will follow uh, follow the crude. Makes sense, Robert. So it's a, it's a percentage that we need to look at, not a nominal dollar amount. So if oil prices yeah. and bunker prices doubled, uh, then you think maybe the spread would double from say fifty back to a hundred. Okay, interesting. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Kind of the kind of the question. Uh, you know, sure, maybe you don't have exact insights on it, but in your opinion, uh, what do you think could happen to the oil prices going forward in the next couple of months? Do you think we're going to see more? Uh, pressure on the markets? Are we going to see more of these uh, zero or negative price inc- uh, headlines? Or, or do you think that's kind of behind us and the market's more normalized now? 
I mean, it's miners, and this, I'm not going to pretend to be an oil trader, but uh, uh, it's, it's shipping and freight that, that I should know a few things about. But when it comes to the oil, I think the, the miners and all that, you look at the, the six billion barrels that were traded, it's very much a technicality. And, uh, and yes, it, it could happen on the, on the next roll. And, uh, but I think uh, overall, it's, it's looking at the oil price, it's, it's going to be a very, very simple answer. And it's going to be related to when does the world demand come back? Because the only way this oil price price will come up is, is for the, the obvious uh, reason, which is, is demand returning. When, when that happens, uh, there's probably many on this call that have a much better educated guess than, than I do. Uh, my simple uh, guess, and this is why I think uh, the uh, inventory build will continue through 2020, I think it takes time before demand comes back. Yes, China and Asia are coming back uh, here, but uh, Europe and US, we are 35% of the world consumption and, uh, and, and, and countries are, are in, a, in a terrible state with the virus, and this will take time. So I think the, um, the, the sort of a, uh, a quick v, uh, v recovery in oil price and it coming back in Q3, for example, I, I don't see that as likely. But, but again, it's, it's, uh, it's a guess. Uh, I don't have the answer. Yeah, I don't. I don't think any of us do. So I appreciate you being uh, honest with that, and we'll see how things go forward. Um, very good questions overall about the market and dialogue back and forth. I appreciate it, Robert. Before we wrap our call up, I do want to shift a little bit to frontline specific and, and talk about capital allocation. So you have record cash flows coming in. Uh, the fleet is basically fully delivered. You have a handful of just a couple LR2s coming up, I think, in 21. But other than that, the fleet's fully delivered. So what are your capital allocation priorities? Are we looking at any more new builds, any more acquisitions, uh, deleveraging, dividends? Uh, how should we think about that? So in specifics, then I will address all these points in uh, in our call uh, coming up in May, of course. So just generally uh, on frontline, the, the simple simple numbers. We we have 24 VLTCs. We are we are actually getting getting one one more here on uh, in June, and we have 28 sewers maxes, and we're getting one more in uh, in um, May. So so two ships very soon, and then as you rightly say, we've got uh, some new buildings that are forward, 21 and 22. The average fleet age in frontline is four years. Uh, the um, history of the company is that we've paid out more than $6 billion since listing in the U.S. in 2001. Investing in frontline, it's uh, 100% investing alongside Mr. Fredrickson. So there's, there's no sort of hidden commissions or anything like that. We have the best balance sheet that we've ever had. We also have uh, um, access to finance, which uh, which I, I can I can confidently say that uh, is second to none, the best in the industry. So coming into um, into 2020, we we had a cash break even across the four year average fleet age, cash break even all in without taking um, time charter cover into into the numbers, nineteen thousand dollars. And above nineteen thousand, uh, we make close to twenty three million dollars. On an annual basis, so the, um, the the earnings potential of the company is fantastic. So I think we're we're in great position, and uh, and all all the the points uh, of your question, Jay, I will I will be very specific on when we do the May call. All right, Robert, keeping us on a cliffhanger, so I'll make sure that, <laughs> to dial into that call and, and maybe throw a few questions in there if they don't get asked. So uh, looking forward yeah, to that. Yeah, that'd, that'd be great. That'd be great. I like your questions. I mean, your, your questions are, are excellent, and they, they, are, they are far better than, than many that are asked, so uh, are normally being asked. So we, we need, some, need some, some new, fresh blood coming into the course. 
Well, thanks, Robert. I appreciate you patting my back a little bit, and we'll see if we'll uh, make that next call and, and get some more uh, clarity on that. Uh, one more question for you, and I know you're probably going to say deferring some of this, but consolidation in, in the global fleet, right? There's uh, the public uh, players and, and so on. Some of them are trading at much cheaper valuations. Uh, how can we think about consolidation? Is that something Frontline would look into? I know, I know a couple of years ago you tried to acquire DHT. And that didn't quite work out. Um, is Frontline perhaps looking at shareholdings and other companies or only focused on Frontline at this moment? No, we're focused on Frontline and what, what we're doing as a company. Uh, we, are, we, are, we feel the, the fleet we have is, uh, is a good one. We've got the size. Uh, if there are deals out there that, uh, that are, are clearly, clearly very creative, then, then we will consider them. But uh, we, we're very much focusing on, on what we, uh, we have at the moment. I think normally when markets are as good as uh, they are now, then people focus on the cash rather than focusing on consolidation. And that's probably the case this time as well. But, uh, but we, we are firm believers in consolidation. We are firm believers in size. We believe we have it, uh, but we could, we could add uh, if, it's, if, it, if we feel it's right for, for, for our shareholders. When it comes to what's happening in, uh, in the fleet, otherwise, uh, as I mentioned earlier, about 10% of the fleet was contracted for, for six months' time charters across Suez Maxes and VLSTs. What happened then is that the, these ships went to quite, few, quite, quite a few hands. So uh, in terms of who's uh, controlling these ships now, it's going to be traders and oil companies. So it, I would call this a temporary consolidation. So uh, the, because of because of these going from individual owners to to large trading houses, for example. But that's that's just a temporary one. And uh, and the the other consolidation story, I think, is ahead of us. Yeah, thank you, Robert. We'll have to watch that play out. It's, it's definitely interesting to see some of the different tanker companies trading at different multiples. Uh, what about new builds, Robert? Is I, I know you mentioned we probably won't see a lot of those, uh, but you did take a couple LR2 new builds. Um, are you in the market for those at the right price, or are you swearing off new builds at this point? Um, no, we're, we're, we're off new builds. Uh, the, the new buildings we're getting now, they, the Suez Max and, and VLCCs, where, for example, they were resells. That we we found found them attractive. They had already started building them, so we got them at a good price. Uh, the Aframaxes uh, are, are are more of a a they are ice class, so uh, so it's a niche market. We we see a lot of ice class ships uh, now um, uh, being north of 15 years old, which will take them out of uh, out of the most important businesses. So this is more a niche trade where we think there's going to be a demand for this specific ship. So uh, new buildings uh, in general uh, is is off uh, is off our radar. Excellent. Thank you, Robert. Hopefully it's off the radar for most of your competitors and peers as well. And, and we'll see. We, ha we haven't seen a lot of new builds in the last uh, six months or so. We'll have to uh, keep tracking that. Uh, final question before we wrap up here. Um, your stock is trading around $11. Uh, as we're talking, it's it's up a little bit pre-market now. But uh, you know, it was 13 something at the start of the year. And uh, so what is going on here? A lot of other of your peers as well are trading much lower today than they are in January, even as earnings are basically at all time highs and, and the current market is very strong. Uh, what is the disconnect there, do you think? Uh, why are why is the stock not trading up to these higher prices? Why is there even a discount to NAV in some cases? No, we are we are surprised, and but obviously there are there are the obvious uh, answers. There's the world situation. Uh, there, there is also say say people hold five uh, five stocks, and um, and four of them are performing very bad, and they get margin calls. We've seen we've seen that in Norway, especially a month ago. There was a lot, we have a lot of private investors. It looked like 
there were some margin calls here and there, which, which in the way the, the stock reacted. So, but for us, we, 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 we look at the earnings potential. We, we have, a, have a great EPS potential here, and uh, that's, that's how we can, can bring value back to, back to shareholders. And, uh, and, and we, are, we are surprised as well at how, how the, um, the industry is being priced. And, uh, and also special with us, because we, we have have over decades had a premium pricing and uh, and that is uh, is obviously uh, down to the factors that I mentioned uh, mentioned before where the support of Mr. Fredrickson and the the finance and the fleet and all this is uh, is, is very important factors so so let's see uh, i think if this carries on then then um, hopefully there's going to be be more 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 faith in the stocks further down but uh, for us it's uh, day-to-day operations and we're making money and that's that's the important thing All right. Thank you, Robert. Well, we're looking forward to the quarterly results in about a month, and I'll take you up on that call. Uh, Parting fun question for you. You mentioned on an interview about a month ago that if rates dropped below, I think you said 30,000 a day in Q2, you're going to basically run all the way across Norway. Do you have any? No, I'm not going to run. I'm, not, no, I'm, 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 not, I'm, I'm getting. I play a lot of squash. I'm not super unfit. I'm, I'm semi-fit, but I'm. It's 300 miles, so I'm not going to run. But I will. I will walk it, and I'm, I'm going to get. I'm going to get. So basically, the bet was we had a. It was a, a podcast I did, and uh, and the analyst that was hosting it had a very very bearish outlook, and I I started the, the call by inviting him to for the bet, where I said if we get back to the level seen in end of January, early early February. In Q2, then I will walk from Oslo to Bergen, uh, which is 300 miles. And then he said, "Yeah, well, this is an easy bet." And I, I said, uh, "Said okay, I'll throw Q3 into it as well." And uh, so we did that. And I'm put it swim mildly. I'm I'm very confident with uh, with that bet. I don't think uh, I don't think there's going to be any walking uh, across the country. And I think uh, there's much higher chance that he's going to he's going to be buying front on a nice dinner. Wow. Well, you beat me to my follow-up because I was going to say, are you going to double down and say Q3 as well? And it sounds like the answer is yes. <laughs> I've already thrown it in there, and uh, and uh, I probably I probably would throw Q4 in as well, but he hasn't asked me yet. But I've got it. I've got it up my sleeve. So you're ready to go all the way out to Q4. Say it's not going to go below 25 or 30 a day, and if it does, uh, you will walk across the country. You're not going to run. You're not Forrest yep. Gump. No, I'm not, not going to run. And then I'm going to I'm going to spend my share of the uh, of the dividends here, and I'm going to going to buy myself a very nice American uh, camper van, like a proper size, one you can you can park a small car in the back of. I'm not sure if it's going to work in Norwegian roads, though. But it's it's nice to have a dream. So I've never seen any proper camper vans in this country. So uh, it's it's important to if you if you're going to walk that far, I need I think you need to have some comfort as well. Very exciting. Well, hopefully you won't have to walk that far, but we'll uh, we'll see uh, how it plays out. Thank you very much, Robert, for joining us this morning. We really appreciate it. I appreciate uh, being invited. Thank you very much, Jay. Thank you, everyone, for joining us this morning on another live call. We hosted Robert McLeod, CEO of Frontline, stock symbol FRO. I have no current position in Frontline. This call is taking place in the morning of 23 April 2020. If you're listening to recording at a later date, those positions may have changed. Nothing you heard on the call today constitutes official advice or accompanying guidance in any form. 